And today on Bros Do Science, we have Dean Somerset. Dean's a personal trainer coming from snowy Edmonton. And he came to share his views on Jose Antonio's recent article on protein. He's come to talk to us about back pain, best tips for taking, uh, getting your clients to do exercise, and which exercises are the best if we're talking about the generic patient. He also talked about ways that personal trainers can work with chiropractors, physiotherapists, and doctors in a, in a communal, but professional manner. And he also talked about the, our client or our patient's motivations and what the best way to get our patients to do the job they need to do on the other six days of the week that we don't see them. I hope you enjoy. This is Bros Do Science. Let's boogie. Let's boogie. So let's rock and roll. Uh, thank you very much, Dean, for uh, joining us and helping us go through all the stuff we're gonna, planning to do. Um, if you want to say, tell us about like your background, and then we can rock and roll. Sure. Um, I got a degree in 2004 at the University of Alberta for Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology. I'm a strength and conditioning specialist, medical exercise specialist, certified exercise physiologist, so all fancy things that just say I teach people how to lift stuff up and put it down. Um, okay. My big goal is that coming to the industry, I saw that there was kind of a, a really big uh, opening between two different sides of the coin. There was the people that wanted elite athletic performance and also like weight loss, muscle building, and then there was also rehab on the other side. But in between, there was literally nothing, and that's where my big ugly mug kind of fits in. Uh, I'm trying to essentially showcase how to create that difference between the clinical aspect and the gym bits. So if we have clients that come in with things like knee injuries, back injuries, shoulder injuries, the stuff that pretty much everybody walking through the goals is going to have, what can they do to bridge the gap between the clinical aspect of things and the gym-based things in a way that's not necessarily going to hurt them, but it's going to be of value to the clinical aspects that are being worked on. So obviously we want to make sure that we're in communication with physical therapists, chiropractors, doctors, everybody that we can and we're all talking the same language. There was a big gap in the market as far as what that actually meant. So I'm trying to do my best to kind of fill that gap and provide knowledge to trainers and continuing education workshops and at least give them the tools necessary to help people out in a better way than just, here, let's do three sets of 10 bicep curls or let's work on any of the kind of sport performance stuff with their 70-year-old clients that would be completely unqualified for those individuals. I love your bicep curls. By the way, hey, they're important. You need to have strong shoulders to do bicep curls. I know it's like Monday bicep curls till Friday and then uh, rest. Um, yep. um, I don't know if you saw Jose Antonio, Dr. Jose Antonio's uh, research that came out uh, yesterday about overfeeding. It was a longitudinal research about um, overfeeding in protein. So another one bites the dust about kidney failure or too much protein uh, is harmful. Yeah. I don't know if you went through it. I didn't go through the entirety of the, the study, but I did get some Cliff Notes versions from Brad Schoenfeld. And uh, when he comes to reading research on that kind of stuff, he's one of the top in the business as far as being able to read it and then disseminate it for other people to be able to pick up. And my take on that was that when they asked what was considered a hypothetical ceiling limit for what protein intake should be, there was no adverse effects. Downside with it, they were doing it very young individuals with a small sample size. So if they could do it with different age ranges, maybe they'd see something different, but initial outcomes show that with active, there seems to be a ceiling for protein intake. 
Exactly, because uh, in the past, that's the thing. The, uh, the myth began when everybody saw the GFR going high, but the initial research was in people that already had uh, like kidney disease. So, yeah. another one bites the dust. Charlie. Um, yeah, so you did a recent podcast with uh, Professor McGill, who's kind of a long-term friend of the college. He comes over every sort of year, year and a half to, to give us seminars. And I think in the MSK world, we can all sort of say, okay, we get basic McGill. You know, we can all kind of appreciate what he's saying. We know where he's coming from. But for you, what were the sort of takeaways that you have from chatting with him on that sort of one-to-one -one basis, um, sort of beyond the big three, or yeah, we got to use our core and all this sort of stuff. What, what was the biggest takeaway for yourself? Honestly, the biggest takeaway, like we all know about the reading, his recommendations for how to move, how to move, all that kind of stuff. My big takeaway was how much passion he still has for everything involving spine mechanics and teaching. Like he's at the end of his academic career right now. I think this is final semester, and then he's just going to be doing books and teaching and stuff like that. But uh, the fact that he's been doing this for 40 years and still lives the passion within the, the subject matter that he has is amazing. I mean, trainers that'll burn out after two or three years of talking about things like the spine or the shoulder or whatever, but the fact that as involved as he is, is mind-blowing. And it's something that I kind of aspire to be in that same boat. I mean, I've only been a trainer for 15 years. I've still got a lot of years left in me to be able to get even close to the level of experience that he has. But passionate about is the, the big thing that's a, a big takeaway that I got out of it is you're never really done learning and he's kind of leading by example in that front. And what do you think the biggest key then is to, to keeping that passion alive as opposed to getting, getting bored or doing things the same way? I think the biggest is just to stay curious. I mean, you look at the, the breadth of research that he's put out, it's not just on, well, here's a spinal disc in vitro. It's, well, let's see what happens when we have, let's see what happens when we have strongman athletes. What happens when we have power lifters? What about gymnasts? What about Cirque du Soleil athletes? He's looking at the spine not just as a set physiological structure, a set uh, anatomical feature. He's looking at it, so can we have a gymnast move the same way as a strongman athlete? Maybe, maybe not. What's going to be the risk to that? And then how do you actually determine what's different, very different athletes in very different sports based on their unique anatomical and physiological gifts? So being curious about all of that has probably led to him having nation come at him with a lot of questions that he wants to have answered. Plus having the tools to be able to do that answering becomes really important as well. So if you don't have a multi-million dollar biomechanics lab at a university, you can still be curious about stuff. That just means that you hop in research and you start looking around for people that have asked the same kind of questions. And if you can't find people that have asked those questions, you reach out to people and say, hey, have you ever thought of this, this, or this? And just ask more questions. There's never really going to be a time when you know everything. And if you're able to stay engaged and excited about the work you're doing, that's even better. If you're thinking, oh, there's nothing left for me to do, you're not asking the right kind of questions or you're not challenging yourself to find new ways of approaching a problem. Yes, that kind of individually tailored approach to kind of figuring out every clinical situation as a as n equals one, as opposed to kind of using blanket treatment yeah. plan, blanket uh, research methods, blanket uh, uh, kind of putting people into pockets and stuff like that. Yeah, and we actually talked about uh, the, the aspects of group training too. You think about personal mm -hmm. trainers, if you've got twenty or thirty people running through a program administratively and logistically it's impossible to fully assess each person in that area 
but you can still separate people out into realistic paradigms. You could say, you know, who has pain when they sit or who has pain when they walk? Okay, the people with back pain when you sit, you go over here. People with back pain when you walk, you go over here. We're going to do different types of exercises for them. Now, obviously, that's something very rudimentary and very low skill, but still, by putting everybody into this exact same training program, you're going to wind up with some people that do really well and some people who do catastrophically bad. But it's very easy to create separation on things and just be able to say, okay, well, are you naturally strong or are you naturally quick? Are you naturally very mobile and deep or are you naturally really stiff and tight? And we can separate people out very easily and there's say, group A over here, you do this exercise. Group B over here, you do this exercise. It's still a group setting, but you're just lowering the barrier of problem problem capabilities for what that exercise program is going to involve for the individuals. Yeah, I think we see a lot in our profession and you know it's it's not that far different from yourself where we have so many tools in the toolbox but it's when to use the right tool for the right you know is a hammer for a nail or is it a screwdriver for a screw and trying to figure out which which modality to apply to which person preemptively. Uh, Absolutely. In order to get the, the quickest and, and best result. Yeah, and I think a lot of that also comes down to being willing to acknowledge when you don't know what to do in a situation or when you have to acknowledge that somebody else that you know of is better at that situation than you are. For instance, I refer my clients out all the time. There's a chiropractor who works in my club. There's a chiropractor who's up the street. There's also another one who works a few blocks away. Each of them are very good at very different things. And I'll refer out to the specific individuals who I say, this person does very well with this, this, and this, and I can't do that. There's no reason why I should do that either. I'll also out to physical therapists who have expertise in things like female pelvic floor anatomy, postnatal. I, I literally can't do that. And I don't think that any of my clients would want me doing internal exams in the middle of the gym floor. Just do, you know, it, it's not going to fit. So for that, if I have a client who comes in who says, I have pelvic floor dysfunction, I have heaviness, I have, have prolapse, any of that, I literally cannot touch that. So it's going to be something that I refer out to somebody who has the qualifications and experience and also happens to be one of the best in Western Canada at working with pelvic floor dysfunctions, I'd be it not to. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, she sends me people for gym work. So in that situation, she knows that she's got the clinic set up the way that she needs her clinic set up to be an expert at what she does. She'd have a gym in her clinic. She'll send the people out to me to save space and also save equipment, but also because I'm better at teaching things like how to squat, how to hit hinge, how to brace, how to breathe, than she is because that's not what she spends her time doing. In chiropractic, we say the same thing. You guys are fantastic at what you do in terms of the adjustments, manipulations, doing any kind of soft tissue work. But if you don't have the skill set in doing coaching, which I don't doubt that some, some of you have a really good amount of coaching experience, that's absolutely fantastic and you should use it. But if it's not worth your time or if it's not worth your clinical time uh, space to be able to do that, find a trainer in your area who you trust or who you think you could work with. Now that might mean that you go and you train with them for two or three sessions to say, okay, that is good. I, he knows what he's doing. This girl is yeah, maybe not quite the right one. This guy over here is an idiot. never sending any of my patients to him. But that way you can at least vet who your community is. And when somebody says they need to get stronger, you have a network that you actually refer people out to. Give them a business card. Say, go see this person. Tell them I sent you. Maybe they'll give you a staff discount or something like that. But know when to tag up. You have to have that expertise and that willingness to be humble and say, you know, I'm good at this. I'm good at using a hammer on a nail, but I'm not good at sawing a board with a hammer. Always Everybody's practice. Absolutely. And yeah, so like that's why we are missing scope of practice and having a really good team, as you said, because I've seen some comments from uh, your friend 
and uh, Tony Gentilcolor who says how humble and always how smart you are. So it's not about being the best, about handling each situation uh, and having a great team to support you. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's about what can I do to get results with this person. Exactly. That, that's the entire motor software that I operate. If, if I have to tell a person I can't help you, that means I don't close a sale on it. That means I don't count. But at the same time, if I literally can't help that person, what is the good of me charging the money and having them be disappointed service? It's only going to look bad at me at the end of the day. And I mean, there are some situations where it's like, okay, yeah, this is a really, really easy fix. This is a little bit more complex. And I've had probably about five, six times this year where I've told a client, I can't help you, but I know somebody who can. I want you to go see this person. They're going to give you a second set of eyes to look through what's going on. And they'll report back to me with stuff that I should do or should not do because this is a situation where there's a red flags going off in my mind as far as what I may or may not be hurting if you throw a workout program. And the risk is just too great. And a lot of the time they'll say, you know, this huge relief to me because I thought you were just going to try to sell me sessions and try to put me on a program that was going to hurt. Amen. And that happens all the time. And that's the unfortunate thing with the fitness industry is chasing dollars more than they're trying to chase the helpfulness of being able to provide results. And I would say, in the interest of full disclosure, I'd have to slap the chiropractic business model on the wrist at something like this too, where they'll say, you know, we have to sell 36 treatments at times a week, and in some cases that may not necessarily be the case. You know, that, that business model, that may not be patient-centered. And I do agree that that is something that can be beneficial for a lot of people, but in many ways it may not be that patient's best interest, it's more to the business model's best interest. So I'm willing to tell clients that if I do 12 sessions and you only need three, I'll refund the other nine. Just yeah. do the fact that I want to make sure they're working the best. Yeah, exactly. I think it's one of those things that I know in Canada and the States, because of the way the insurance companies work, obviously that drives that, doesn't it? Where I know over here in England, insurance isn't such a big thing. Most thing is completely self-funded. And so it's rare to be able to sell someone a package of 50 treatments up front yeah. and get them to you know sign on onto that both financially and ethically. Yeah. Um, if we were to drop it back now into uh, things that people can start to actually implement with their patients and, and clients sort of right away, because um, obviously we've now learned, you know, individualized approach, refer, 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 build a kind of a, a group of, of team members and professionals that you can work with in a kind of community. Mm -hmm. For you, say someone comes to you, they're within your scope of practice, they, they have back pain. So they're one of these kind of rehabby, prehabby sort of people. Can, can I, I know I'm going to be the, let's take it back to the basics, sorry Charlie. Mm. Sure. We always say we're trying to assess, like for assessments, we're mm -hmm. going to see them for 45 minutes, rest maybe an hour, the rest 23, yeah. hour, 23 hours, we can't. So let's start from that. like. We always try to be like magicians, either PTing, coaching, being a chiropractor, and they come in, the perfect posture, we say, oh, you know, you've got anterior head carriage, or you've got, oh, lower back pain, let's, you've got a tilt, or you've got upper crow syndrome, or whatever. Then, 23 hours, they're slouching, they're in the plane, they're in the car, like, you know, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the biggest concepts to take from Posture analysis in any way is that posture is a fluid state. It's not static in any way, shape, or form. And I think one of the, the biggest hindrances to any kind of process is using a picture to tell what posture is. So whether or not it's good or bad. If, if your person stands 
in one spot and you do like a time-lapse photography of them or time-lapse video of them, you'll see, you'll see that they're always moving around and kind of fidgeting. So if you take 50 different pictures of the individual, you'll see 50 different static postures over time just due to the fact that they are in a static or in a fluid state that's always changing. So if we say you know, the individual has a forward head carry, anterior pelvic tilt, any of that kind of stuff, is that just what their response was to their environment at that point in time, or is that what they always carry with them at every single extent? Now also what happens when you have a static posture versus a gait posture? If a person is walking, do they still have that anterior pelvic tilt, or do they even it out, or do they wind up with something like a spinal hinge to drive extension? So we have to start looking at not just the static posture of the individual, but the fluid posture of the individual, the dynamic posture of the individual, and also, is that a positive adaptation for them to be in that posture versus a negative adaptation? So let's think about the, the average office worker. We know that sitting in a chair is terrible for you, but if you've done that for 50 weeks a year, 40 or 50 hours a week for 20 years, your body adapts to that stress to allow you to become better at sitting. If we undo that positive adaptation, they're now less fit at sitting, which means that we do open up the door for not just an improvement of health in one direction, but the potential of some sort of injury or pain or dysfunction because we're pushing against that positive adaptation that they have. If you take a baseball pitcher from a young age and they start getting that layback mechanism in their arm to be able to create some sort of an external rotation feature in their throwing arm, that's a positive adaptation for the sport. They lose internal rotation of their arm, but again, that's a positive adaptation to that sport. That doesn't mean that it's healthy long-term for their body as an entire system or as an entity or organism. It just means to play that activity, that was a positive thing that had to happen to become better and to be able to throw the kind of heat that they had. For somebody who's sitting in an office chair, this might actually be a positive adaptation. And it's something that we might not necessarily need to correct out all at once, but it's something to be aware of. So like you were saying, you know, we see them for 45 minutes, they have the other 23 hours that they have to go through. If sitting in the chair is actually causing a problem, we can put them in a chair and have them sit and then have them stand, and there should be a difference between what they feel. If they feel no pain when they stand, but they only feel pain when they sit, okay, well now we can look at how are you sitting, adjust your posture, can we adjust your positioning, maybe your environment needs to be adjusted or something like that. But it could also be the accumulation of stressors from other things that we need to work on. So you guys go through lifestyle stress quite a bit, and you learn about the impact of things like nutrition, sleep, hydration, all that kind of elements of things that add into things. So when we start looking at posture, it's not only just a physical rotation of their environmental aptitude within that space and time at that specific second of their environment, but it's also a representation of how do you feel during that time. You know, are you stressed out and in a sympathetically driven state? or are you relaxed in a parasympathetic state? Can you actually breathe with non-apical breathing style? Or do you do anything that can actually reverse that process? Do you have mobility or are you literally stuck in that position and you need somebody to come along and give you a little snap to be able to loosen it up, right? So it's a matter of, you know, the posture itself is just representation of what's going on. It's not the end-all, be-all. Then we have to start thinking, why is the posture that way? And do we need to do anything about that posture to actually see some change? A lot of the time when I see trainers talking about like, oh, anterior pelvic tilt is bad, it might be, it might also be. Your is not firing or stuff like that. We, we are too focused on like uh, on a tree and we lose the whole forest, you know what I mean? Like, sure. But even then, in specific instances, you take an elite power lifter, they are going to be anterior pelvic tilted. To be able to do a squat, you have to hard arch into that thing, right? So they've trained themselves to be in that way, and they are actually powerful and strong. So when people start saying, oh, you have weak hamstring in an anterior pelvic tilt, show me a 1,000-pound squatter who isn't in an anterior pelvic tilt and also who has weak hamstrings. 
they do exist, but there's like one or two of them in the world. By the way, I hate your uh, thoracic mobility. Whenever I see you squat, I'm like, this guy, man. But you know, I, I've got positive adaptations that I show. I don't show you the negative adaptations. Right? <laughs> Those aren't Instagram friendly. That's so okay. So then we we have these people that we've now that was quite the tangent. Yeah. Uh, that you sent them us off on. Uh, anyway, <laughs> if so, we see these people. We've we've done whatever analysis we're going to do, whether that's whatever outcome measure we've decided on. We yep. do our assessment uh, in inverted commas, and now we want them to go home and spend the next six days and twenty three hours doing stuff before they see us next, or the next two, the next month. Yep. What have What have you found to be the key to getting clients and patients to to doing home exercises, to doing their self care, to adapting that kind of that kind of lifestyle change because it's so key and it's the kind of the main driver for us actually getting our patients better in the long term but it's actually the, the least adhered to bit of our treatment plans yeah the biggest thing that i consider with that i'm sorry what was that do you have a question out there or? yeah sorry so what's what's key in, in your mind what, what have you found that works the best to getting them to then adhere to that plan yeah, the biggest component that I find for adherence is just understanding what their level of prioritization of that specific goal is in their lifestyle. So if an individual comes into the gym and they say, oh, I just want to be out of pain, I don't want to work out, I don't want to do anything about it, you're, you're going to have a hard time getting them to do any kind of work, especially if it's something that they just don't prioritize high in their life. Whereas if you have somebody who their entire being is their health and their wellness and being able to have control and mastery over their own way to do stuff, you can give them literally anything and they're going to be able to fire off and do it. So there are some people where if you tell them, I want you to do one small tiny thing with the with your day, but it's going to be a very, very mild, like 1% inconvenience, they won't do it. Hmm. Just due to the fact that their prioritization of that is so low, they just can't be bothered with it. So with stuff like that, I try to ask them, you know, the simplest thing that you could do that would be a no-brainer that you would just automatically do and not have to think about it. Like what's the lowest hanging fruit to get get you in the right direction. So for some people it's like, okay, I just want you to drink a glass of water in the morning. Once you're successful with that, you know, that's something that's easy to do. All you do is pour a glass and drink a glass of water. If you're unsuccessful to do something like that, then we gotta think, okay, what are you what's your prioritization with this or what's something they can actually succeed with? If it's a client that's coming back off of something like I had a client who had a total hip replacement. And his hip all the way around that, like the joint was, it was like he had a 57 jalopy car and he dumped a Lamborghini engine into it. He still had a 57 jalopy car. The shocks were broken. The steering was terrible. The door squeaked when it opened and closed. So his muscles, his fascia, the soft tissue, the lymphatic flow all through the area was still a 57 jalopy. He had to do it to be able to retrain it. And I said, here's what you have to do. You got to do stuff every day. It doesn't have to be high intensity, you just got to get up and move around. And he was saying that it was getting stiff and tight in the morning, so we thought he had to go back to his surgeon. So I said, what happens when you get up and walk around? Oh, it gets a lot better. Okay, so now you know what you have to do. You have to do something active to get moving. And it was that cluing in of him being able to say, you know, there's a direct connection between the two. When I move, I feel better. So now I know when I'm feeling crusty or whatever in that hip, right up and I move around a little bit, it's going to feel better. Now he's bought into that concept because there's that direct connection to it. And when he's in pain, his priority of getting out of pain will be much higher. So when he's not in pain, what do you think he does? Nothing. Because it's not a high priority to him. So that's when it's actually most important to reinforce and solidify that concept. And so 
sometimes it can just come down to making that mental connection through like an analogy or something like that where they're able to buy in and then prioritize it nice and high. But the key that I found is that if the person just doesn't care, you can talk until you're blue in the face. They still don't care. And if they're coming to you on an insurance, they're not paying for it, and they have no prioritization of it, no buy-in, they don't care. So you have to do as much as you can to be able to get them to pick the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that takes zero effort to do, and be able to get them to a results stage. The people who care and are really switched on with it, you can't teach that. You can't motivate that. You can't fake that. That they are, and they're going to do whatever you tell them to do. So you kind of have to tailor how you give out your information to the person who's in front of you, just like you do your plan, just like you do your... Uh, assessment plan, all that kind of stuff, because the individual then has to go home and do all their work, but it has to be at a stage where they can be successful, which sometimes means you set the bar extremely low for success. Yeah. Yeah, if you, if you set the ambition really low, then there's no chance of failing. Absolutely. <laughs> then then you can build on that success. And I've had clients where early on in my career, we were talking about nutrition. I would have them say, I just want, I, I just want you to write down your food so I can give you some good solid advice on what to do and they wouldn't write down their food and it would be like six months later have you started writing anything there okay I just want you to text me what you had for breakfast and they wouldn't do any of that so their prioritization of being able to have somebody help them with nutrition was ridiculously low and you and I can sit here and think well why would you have a problem doing that when somebody's offering to help you with that they did and it would be a matter of me saying okay here's what I want you to do for your breakfast did you actually do that no Okay, so the barrier on that is something that I just can't get through because their prioritization is so high. So what's a different thing that I can work with on? Can I get them to go for a walk at the end of the day or can I get them to go for a, a walk at lunch? Or what can we actually do to help them get through that to see positive adaptation in a new direction? Sometimes you just have to meet them where they're at. And that's the thing, like we pay too much attention to our cars, our smartphones, our all this stuff and don't care uh, take care of our body and that's the thing like day to day we come around with people that are like oh you know what I want to change I want to lose weight whatever and you tell them that you don't need to like do many like bombardments of stuff like Dr. Levine said about meat like can you walk to work can you park like two blocks away can you just you know take the stairs or whatever like make it as simple as possible but Love yeah, it's, uh, it's it's nice. It's nice. Yeah, Dean, I mean, are we following are we following followers or are we following science? What do you mean? Exactly. <laughs> uh, you can see that in the fitness industry, uh, every um, artist comes out a new thing. So we see people jumping around doing stuff. It's good for us because we're gonna work. I'm going to have business um, adjusting or helping people with uh, injuries. But yep. um, I see what uh, Brett Contreras is doing, Brad Schoenfeld, Alan, James Krieger, uh, lots of guys about science. And the thing is, we're trying to combine the lab rats that don't even lift and guys that lift and try to combine, bring science and lifting uh, together. Yeah. So that's what I mean, like, are we following followers or are we following science? Well, a lot of that comes down to who has the better market. And I, I don't say that to dissuade scientists at all. I don't say that to dissuade marketers at all. But marketing is about psychology than it is about you know, ethics or anything like that. What marketing tries to do is capture people's attention and interest. 
So it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not you have the greatest scientific acumen in the world if nobody cares to listen to you. And in, okay. in this world, free information. This is a time when more information is available for zero dollars than any time in human history before. If we look back at the, the olden days before even printed words were out, if you had to learn something, you had to go study under a master. That master had to be willing to take you under their wing and show you how to do things. And there was a cost associated with that, either monetarily or time involvement or anything like that. If you wanted to purchase any information to read, if you wanted even if just to be able to learn how to read, you had to have somebody show you you had that. To be able to get any information, you had to either buy a book, buy a magazine, buy a newspaper, or subscribe to scholarly journals. Beyond that, if you wanted to actually see specific videos, you had to pay for those videos. Now we're at a stage in history where we can access all the information in the world for free. You can get the specific information you have to pay for. Videos, you can access those for free. You want programs, you can have direct contact world leaders in any field that you want in a direct manner that's never been accessible before. But with all that information, now we actually have to get people to actually pay attention to stuff they want to pay attention to. We're inundated with something like a thousand advertisements a day, and I think that number is going to triple in the next three years, just because a lot more individuals have the ability to purchase advertising to get in front of people. So you're going to see more and more and more advertising go. We become desensitized to it. Like there's park benches that now say, "Oh, is their advertising made you look?" Because they know that people don't care about that stuff. And they're trying to get your attention one way or another to be able to say, you know, here's an advert that works, here's a medium that works. But at the same time, if you're a scientist trying to tell people about the impact protein intake on body composition, how do you actually do that in a way that they pick up versus the Instagram butt model who's in detox shakes and has Instagram, right? But this isn't to dissuade them at all. They've done something very right. They've been able to get attention in a very crowded and polluted place. So they don't have the information that's clinically relevant or scientifically relevant because we all know the chocolates are probably the dumbest thing you could possibly get, especially when it's coming from somebody who's a spandex. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, well, do those research, get their information out. They're obviously smart people. They could learn from the booty on Instagram, actually develop a marketing plan, and then actually put it in place. So I think that with a lot of those guys that you were mentioning, they're very keen and very adapt to being able to not just put out the science, but also when it's consumable and in a way that people want to pay attention to. Brett's found a really good niche with glutes as far as being able to show half-naked figure competitors, which bumps up his Instagram rating. Brad's done a very good job of being able to say, here's an infographic outlining a specific study and then debating people in a way that makes people learn from them. James is great at talking about Star Wars, making it something that's adaptable. In that realm, like it doesn't matter what you know if people don't care about it. You got to be able to put it out there in a way that somebody who is a consumer is going to be able to say, "This was important to me, and I appreciate it." Exactly. That's the nature of marketing. It's how do you get and capture the attention of the people who want to actually capture it. And there's actually an entire psychology around that. You go into any book, and there's going to be books on sales. There's going to be books on marketing. There's going to be books on business. If you're one of those practitioners who skips over that entire section and for the science of physiology, you're missing the boat. Exactly. Fantastic, Dean. Uh, I think you've touched on so much really relevant content today that we can pretty much apply right into our clinical practice tomorrow. Uh, my one final question, just to bring it back to sort of what we can do in the clinic tomorrow, is um, sort of what to you, if we go back, so, so we've assessed this person, we found out yeah. their posture is maybe or maybe not a problem. 
We've yep. then determined that they're right for our modality. So we're talking rehabilitation, strength training. Yep. And we also know that they have a history of back pain. So what to you, and this is just kind of non-specific back pain. I know we could get far more specific with our diagnoses, but if we just kind of blanket term this, yep. what would you say would be the top sort of exercises that you would, your go-to, your first, I'm going to try these and if they work great, because I have the highest success of these, what would the top exercises be that you'd be trying to get that person to engage in both with yourself and also by themselves, their sessions, etc. Yeah, and a lot of that is going to be context specific. So when you say non specific, they're obviously a context to that. Do they have, what direction is their, do they only have problems when they bend down shoes? Do they only have problems when driving their car? When they sleep on their side, is that a problem? Or when they sleep on their stomach, is that worse? Each of those, you know, that's going to be a different presentation as far as what the anatomical features are involved. So, like, what's their psychological state as they go into that? Do they have some sort of a trigger as far as emotion that's not physical, but it's more of that psychological or emotional? So, in terms of saying, you know, what's a good starting point? Well, we have to think as hard as possible and take a shotgun approach if we don't know what those specific elements are. And if you've already gone through your assessment, you should have an idea to say, well, okay, they have triggers with these different movements. They have different uh, psychological awareness. Like if I take my finger and rub their back and they say it's a 10 out of 10 on pain, that that's literally shouldn't happen. So there's probably a psychological element in there. We got to pr proceed very costly. Um, with stuff like that, I usually get them to start by learning how to brace without compensating movements of their spine. So if we can get them to at least engage their ab muscles in a three section and then maintain that brace while breathing, that's a start. So it's really something that's easy to do. You get somebody to lay on their back on the treatment table or chiro table, and no matter what you need, you have them go in a crook lying position with their knees bent. And I say, okay, I want you to flex your abs and just enough so that you feel they're flexing in that 360 arc all the way around. And if I put my hand under their lower back when they flex, they're not putting their back into the table. They're not lifting it up off the table, but they're just engaging it. The, the best analogy I use with something like that is I want you to think of tensing your muscles like you're shaking a hand. You know, when I go like this, I shake the hand by just tensing. I don't shake the hand by doing that, right? I'm not trying to deform the hand. I'm just trying to tense into the hand. So then when you're tensing like that, I want you to be able to do long, deep inhales and exhales. If you can do that, you're working pneumatic pressure distribution, you're working intra-abdominal pressure distribution, you're bracing your core, you're maintaining spinal position. It's checking a lot of boxes that I'll be using later on when we do things like a squat, a hip hinge, a lunge, single leg bridge, um, any kind of rotation, anti-rotation, flexion, anti-flexion, any of that kind of training. That's your starting point is going to have to be, and then we'll have to build off of that. So in terms of best bang for your buck exercises, that it's usually got to be the fundamentals. You look at any sport out and they say practice the fundamentals, practice the fundamentals, work on doing your diligence to be really good at the basics of that sport. When we think about anything they're going to do in the gym, they have to brace and breathe. And their neutral is going to be different than my neutral. That's fine. I just want them to be able to brace, get used to turning those muscles, holding them on, and then be able to breathe without relaxing that bracing and without feeling like you're gasping. If you can do that, we've checked so many boxes to start with that that's a great starting point. Absolutely.
Yeah, and I don't doubt that there is some forced closure through the joints. However, I would counter that by saying I've been able to have people see a similar reaction just doing forced breathing on their back with no movement of whatever, with no lateral chain stabi uh, stabilization, nothing like that. So just doing breathing, unguided by me to be able to sit and say contract this muscle, contract that muscle, just laying on your back and saying exhale completely, and then retesting the range of sessions of weight as well. So my thought process has kind of changed on this a little bit from being a, a stability versus instability to being more of a, a PNF style of activation uh, potentiation. So if anyone remembers PNF, where you grab the leg, you bring it up and you stretch the hamstring, you say, contract the hamstring, you it, you relax and you can stretch further. I think that's what it's working on more than anything else. So in terms of creating that range of motion, um, there may be some force closure. I don't doubt there would be, but if I can put the person in a different position where we don't have that direct access to SI joint, laying on your back and flying, the SI joint is pretty much not being pushed or pulled or moved in a way. If we're able to do it just with some heavy breathing or some really forceful exhalation, like breathing through the nose, and you try to breathe every drop of air out of your lung whatsoever to really clamp down on the abs and get that big contraction through the entire system. If I'm able to do something like that, I'll get force closure of all the joints, true, but I think it's more of that pre-activation relaxation modality. So if I hyper-stimulate the muscles and cause them to really spike activity when I the activity drops even lower than what it was beforehand, very much like a PNF style of stretch. I think that's where more of the action is actually coming from than uh, a redistribution of alignments of different joints. Now that could very well be the case, but if I that was the case, then doing something like a mulligan technique would provide a similar response. Because what are we doing there? You're grabbing, literally shifting the joint into a new position with an external force. So if that was the case, yes, you would see the improvement that way as well. And it would be as dramatic, but I don't know if it would be or not. It's gonna be a very case to case dependent. Yeah, and I think that the term stability is a great umbrella term, but I think it's not very specific. So when we talk about stability, you could talk about something like, okay, if I was to bolt plate to the floor, it's not moving. That's a very stable structure, but the spine isn't bolted to the floor unless you have an actual bone to bone block implanted to create a spinal fusion. That's going to be a very stable segment, but again, it's not going to function very well. The spine does flex, extend, rotate, even just normal walking, it has to move. So I think that the term stability, instability itself is somewhat misleading. I think that we have to go with more of a, a motor pattern approach to something like this. So we could think about a pattern deficiency or a pattern irregularity, where let's say the person goes to flex their spine and all of a sudden they develop a really sharp hinge at one vertebral segment. And we see massive erector spinae hypertrophy on either side of the specific spinal segment. That tells me that they're moving from that segment a lot and they probably shouldn't be moving that one segment. And you guys probably clinically say the same thing. 
every time you examine some spine, you get the reflex and you see this one vertebral hinge and you're like, okay, something's not quite right there. So what happens when you one segment all the time? It gets tired. If I do 50,000 bicep curls, my biceps are going to work tomorrow. If I only flex and extend from that one vertebral body, everything around that vertebral body is going to be sore because that's driving a lot of force from. And if it's not something where I'm using a stabilizer versus a prime mover like my hips, it's going to get beat up. So you're going to wind up with not just like structural uh, instability, but the muscles, the ligaments, the tendons, they just get beat up. You might develop like uh, this ligamental irritation that is just due to the fact from that area. So then we have to think, okay, well, what's causing that? It doesn't show up on the MRI, but when I have the person flex stand, I can see there's an instability element to that motor pattern. We can retrain them to move differently and be able to remove that uh, irritating movement to do something like get them to brace, get them bent from their hip ever. But essentially, they're telling me that when they do that movement, it's an irritant. We can kind of move around that. Now, if I have somebody that's trying to develop force, uh, let's say they're doing an Olympic lift, they need to have a director spinae to be able to do a powerful extension to get that quadruple extension done properly. But at the same time, it shouldn't be coming from one vertebral segment. It should be coming from a up the back. You look at the really good power uh, Olympic lifters, and they've almost got anacondas running down either side of their spine, and they're full all the way down. And then there's like a dead space, and then like two little lumps down here. If you see stuff like that, that's telling you those are the segments that are moving. If I want all segments moving, should be moving. So when we start talking about instability, I, I think it's more of like a hyper motion versus non-motion kind of a concept. So if we're working on getting the duplexion extension, ideally each vertebral segment should be moving through that segment or through that series. But if only one is doing all the work, it's going to get beat up and worn out sooner than the other ones. So then the one that we wind up having some sort of a, an irritant around that area. Now it might present as like a lateral nerve entrapment. Um, it might present as a disc bulge. It might present as something like just tendonitis or synovitis or something like that. But it, again, it just comes down to the fact that they're doing something to beat up that set more than the others, and it's wearing down sooner. So we just have to address it in that manner. Now, it might be something where a person leans in a certain direction, and they have a sudden, almost like a letting go of the segment and a spasm of the muscle as a result. That could be a structural thing, or it could just be the muscle freaked out and said, whoa, that went further than we thought it would clamp right down and do something about it. Like my dad had uh, a disc herniation surgery about 30 years ago, and the way that they would do that was a full open posterior approach. And they actually sliced through the transverse abdominus, and he doesn't have one anymore. So when you think about, like that was pre-dating arthroscopic surgery. So for him, when he throws his back out, he does actually throw his back out. When you see the scans, his vertebral body will be rotated and shifted. So when his is out really bad, his lat cramps like crazy. And what is the lat cramping in response to? It, a potential instability of a joint or muscle or something like that. It's trying to protect. So you could have something, you slip or you move, you rotate, and all of a sudden the muscle, bang, clamps right down in a spasm response. But again, that's not to say that it's an instability issue. It was just a pattern response to be able to say, you know, something went really wrong. We've got to try and stop it from moving further. It might be kind of like an over-exaggeration of a response, but it was a response. So we have to start thinking of it, not necessarily in terms of, is it a stability issue or an instability issue, but is it a motor pattern insufficiency issue or is it a reactive insufficiency issue? Start thinking about it more, not necessarily as far as what it is, but what is it doing in response to a stimulus?
You could. And, and I mean, there have been quite a few people who've done very well on almost like Atkins style diets when it comes to lifting. The key on that is to make sure that your protein is high enough to redevelop some of the muscle accretion afterwards. Because otherwise, if you don't have that protein in there, your body has to find it elsewhere, which is where things like uh, gluconeogenesis comes in, all that kind of fun stuff, where you start breaking down non specific uh, energy sources to create new types of protein. Um, but in terms of how much they actually need, I've had some clients they're training for things like powerlifting and Olympic lifting where they're not moving hot, but they're moving with very big intensity. And when you think about the neural output of something like that, I mean, the nervous system is one of the biggest absorbers of glucose in the system. So we're not just looking at the muscle output, we're looking at the neural output too. And if you've ever done very intense training, like very heavy powerlifting, very heavy Olympic lifting, you know that you feel smashed afterwards. And it's not due to muscle fatigue, it's due to your system is needing time to recover. Central nervous system, because you're forcing that muscle to contract so hard, thinking about techniques so hard. It's not something where you go for a 5K run and you can just de-brain for a half hour, or in my case, 40 minutes. But it's one of those things where you, you need the glucose to be able to repair the neural fatigue, which is very tough to measure, but can actually be measured if you have the specific equipment for it. I don't, but I usually just tell people, oh, you're really tired after you did that hard workout? It's probably neural fatigue. Give it 36 hours, 36 hours later, they're like, yeah, I feel amazing. Okay, that probably was it. But at the same time, like, muscularly, they don't need a lot of carbohydrate to do that kind of a workout. However, in order to repair and replenish ATPC, they do need to have a store of stored glycogen within the muscle to be able to make it happen. It's not something where you can go full keto and expect to do very well with it. Some people have adapted to it where they can do that and do well with it. However, I would say that those people are very genetically adapt to that specific type of training. There's a lot of there who when they try to do that, they fail miserably. And at the end of the day, my goal as a, a trainer is to get people to not just survive their sessions, but to thrive. If you're hell bent on pushing a specific nutritional pathway, then you're not working with the client's best interest. I mean, I had one client who he could not function properly on less than 400 grams of carbohydrates a day. 400 grams of carbs. Like how many people eat that much to begin with, we would say almost clinically, nutritionally obese almost, or like pre-diabetic. But for him, he was very glucose dependent as far as what he was doing with his work. And I played with the, the numbers for about two years, and I was like, I want you to try to have less carbs here and see if you have more protein or fat. And he just didn't respond well with it. And once we got him to a state where he was around 400 grams, I was like, what is this monster of nutrition? He's consuming about a gram of protein per kilogram of body weight per day. 400 grams of carbs and not much fat whatsoever and dominating every single one of his lifts. We changed his nutrition slightly to put him at 350 and he couldn't get out of bed in the morning. So for him, he needed, but then I've also had like very high level cyclists who were all and that's where they function best. When you think about cyclists going for a three hour bike ride, that's almost like a no brainer that you would need to be glucose dependent. He only consumed glucose when he was training. That was it. The rest of the time, it was protein and fat. For him, that worked really well. So in terms of a nutritional approach, if you talk with a lot of the big nutrition researchers out there, they'll say there is no one diet that works best for everyone. It's a matter of can you stay on that diet? Is it something the person enjoys? And at the end of the day, does it hit their macro or does it hit their calories in, calories out if they're looking for weight loss or weight gain? And does it have enough protein to spare muscle wasting? If you can do that, no matter what diet you choose, whether it's Atkins, Zone, um, whatever diet, Trace Anderson's. 
I mean, some people thrive on that. I'm not going to argue with it because it's just a diet. If you want to say this is the way the Paleolithic men ate, there's a lot of evidence to say that that's not actually the case, that they actually consume more grains than anything else. But even then, to say no, all foods are allergens. If you look at the biggest allergens out there, what are they? Nuts, shellfish, and certain types of dairy. You know, what, do the, um, what does the paleo diet involve a lot of? Nuts, shellfish, and no dairy. Okay, cool. They cut out dairy. Big deal. But even then, it's a matter of, you know, does the individual tolerate it well? Can they stick with it? Is it something they enjoy doing? And does it actually get them the results they're looking for? So there are a lot of benefits to being able to say, you know, these foods provide these certain nutrients. These foods provide these other types of nutrients. Try to eat a diet with more of this and less of this. There's definitely value to that. But then you have to look at what did that do to the individual afterwards. So to be able to force the diet on them and say, you have to do this because science says so. Science also says make it individual to the person. If they can't stay on the diet, it doesn't matter what the diet is made of. And just bringing it back to what I said earlier, sometimes it's the low-hanging fruit. You just have to make something that they're willing to stick to. If you have a client who's got the massive willpower about their diet and can change their macros on a whim, more power to you. If you have a client who's 200 kilograms and is struggling to be able to figure out how to not eat pizza on the weekends, we got to start with something smaller than them tracking their macros because they're not ready for that. Um, well, I was actually just in Norway a couple of weeks ago for the AFPT personal trainer conference, and um, I've actually just been reinvited back to that. So it's going to be September first to third, twenty seventeen. If anyone makes a wants to make a trip up there, I mean, you're going from one rainy country to another rainy country, so it shouldn't really be that difficult. But uh, I'll be there this weekend. Tony Santacor and I are teaching our last uh, complete shoulder and hip blueprint workshop of the year in Minneapolis, and then at the end of November, I'm in Vancouver teaching a workshop. But uh, other than that, I'm kind of taking 2017 as a bit of an easy year for workshops to kind of focus on a bit more of my own research, a few side projects I'm working with, and you know, training my own clients, because they kind of get ticked off if I'm gone every second or third weekend and not around. 